Welcome to the Emergence Sessions podcast. Sessions is a ministry of Emergence Church that exists to equip us to walk as disciples of Jesus by growing in knowledge and in our ability to live wisely in His world. Hey, this is Doug. I'm just dropping in to let you know that we actually were not able to capture the first couple of minutes from Rick's presentation. Uh, So what you're hearing is beginning a couple minutes into it. All right, that's it. Now I give you the fifth session of Job. That's what he went through as a Christian, but he did not recant his, his faith. So when you talk about things like what we're going to talk about tonight, that's really, well, on. cool. Uh, that's where we are going to basically take the verse and we're going to apply it to these type of sufferings that I've been mentioning over and over again. I want to address the hardest part of our lives in suffering. I want, to, I, want, I want the book and I want the theology and the doctrine of the book to, to address the types of suffering that we call innocent suffering or random, quote-unquote, sufferings. Not the ones, like I said, I've been drinking myself to death and I got liver cancer. That, well, there's no surprise there, okay? So the scholars that believe that this was dropped in think that it was hundreds of years later, most of the scholars that I've read, and that it was to basically bridge, again, like the chapter 28, bridge the gap between the prologue and the epilogue. Um, Here's what I believe. Um, I really believe that it was the same author. And I started to make the point, and I apologize, I I, I got a little sidetracked with them trying to get this thing working. The point that I was trying to make was that I do believe it's feasible, just, just like it's feasible for us, that over a long period of time, the author, and I think it was either Elihu or Job is the author, um, when they step back in after taking a breath, after the, the three friends beaten this guy to death for all those chapters, there's a different tone that you and I have in our, in our walk with the Lord. There always is a different tone. We're not the same person on day one of our trials that we are on day 365, right? We've learned something. Or unfortunately, like I shared before, and probably most of you, I have very dear close friends that I've known for a long time that have walked away from the Lord over suffering that have, or, and have not come back. So their attitude on, day, on the third year is very different than the third month. I think that's possible here. And what have, we, what have we suggested to the class several times? Here's my suggestion about all this. It's important to me to share the academics, but here's what I really want to... I want to bring home because we have one more class. When you're studying the book of Job, uh, it is one of the most important books you could possibly walk into and get a grip on and be familiar with, spend time with, and let the Holy Spirit teach you in. At the end of the day, who wrote it, when it was written, uh, was it in the patriarchal period, et cetera? It is almost meaningless for this reason. The Holy Spirit, the creator of the universe, our Lord and Savior, has chosen to have this book written and put together and dropped into the Bible. End of discussion. Let's study the book. But I, I'm, I'm the nerd, so I love all this other stuff, and I'm going to force you guys to sit through it with me. But uh, the other part of it is that it's good to have some of the background of the book. 
all right? But I do believe the same author. I do think linguistically it works. I, there's nothing wrong. Listen, any movie, any play, Homer, Milton, just pick a play, pick a poem. Frost, there's, there's always an arc, right? There's an ebb and a flow. There's a res, especially in classical music, there's a thing called a resolve. There's drama and drama and drama, crescendo, and very often there's a resolve to give yourself a break, right? So that's in writing, especially poetic writing, and a lot of this is, I have no problem with that. So I truly think it's the same author, and I sincerely think that he stepped in into these two chapters later on, okay? Um, Elihu is never called Job's friend, which is an interesting thing. It, now this is... Um, Remember we said we have a folder that's a Rickism folder, right? This is, the, this is a Rickism folder. I think it's very possible. You remember when Job was getting told about the horrible trials that were coming on him and one person got away to tell him all your servants have been murdered, right? And then as that person's talking to him, another person walks up to him in the middle of that conversation and says, my goodness, all of your crops and your sheep and your cattle, they've all been stolen by, um, I forget who it was, Chaldeans, I think it was, in the middle of that conversation. And then the last conversation in the middle of that is, your children have been crushed to death, they're dead. So there was three individuals there. I think one of them was Elihu. Now, before you go running for the doors, and I think we've locked the doors, you can't get out. So that is a Rickism, but in case you're now thinking how you can sneak out of the class, let me tell you there was a 17th century Calvinist theologian named Giovanni Diodati. Had, it took me all week to find an Italian, so it's about time I found one, right? So the, the theologian's name was a 17th century Calvinist theologian named Giovanni Diodati who taught the same thing in Geneva. It wasn't unheard of. It was a random thought of mine, and then I started going down a a rabbit hole in my studies, and I found there was a number of scholars that thought it's possible that Elihu was one of these three guys that came to Job, all right? Don't die on that hill, but it's an interesting thought, right? So was Elihu the author of the book? Quite possibly, for a lot of good reasons. The only character that has the inclusion of a detailed lineage listed by the author. We stopped short of the reading in the beginning, but after uh, those verses that we just read, we get into his lineage. He's the only character in the book that has it. Not even Job has his lineage, okay? So it supports the belief that he's a real person, not a fictional character created for poetic license. Again, supports the reason why we can, we can feel very confident that this is a real account of real people and real things that happened. And we're dealing with a man, just for recap for everyone that hasn't been here, we're dealing with a man who was considered and called in the first chapter of Job the greatest man alive. He had the most wealth on earth. He was considered the most intelligent man in the world. And he was considered to be the most revered man in the world. That's who we're dealing with. So I have, I can, I pay more attention to the lessons in Job knowing that it really happened. Now, if, if I was to find, uh, if I was to find scholars that could prove that it didn't happen and it was just poetry, I'd still have to contend with the fact that it's in the word of God. But it also helps me to be empathetic toward this because it's a real person that really happened. So uh, the Keelan Dietrich Old Testament commentary, which I said often is the one I use for a lot of my um, language translation, this is what it says about Elihu. It says, 
The fact that there's a lineage, it is remarkable that Elihu's origin is given so exactly while the three are described only according to their country. Without any statement of father or family, it adds some weight for those that believe Elihu wrote the whole book because it was not an uncommon practice of that time for ancient poets to write in this type of third personhood. Now, Adam and I were speaking about this. This is one of the reasons why I think Elihu might be the author. Right? Another Old Testament scholar, uh, Lightfoot and Rosamullo, that are very revered scholars, both infer from this inclusion of his lineage that Elihu is himself the author of the book, since it was the custom of the Turks and the Persians in their poems to weave in the name of the author in an artificial manner near the end of the poem. Elihu comes toward the last section before Job defends himself at the last time and then God steps in. So having Elihu's lineage detailed adds weight to the claim of many commentators and the Targum that he is Jewish. So if that's true, it affects the dating of the book. Because if he's Jewish, it affects the dater as a much younger than I think the book is, just to give you the opposite view. Again, this is interesting, but this, the meat of the book is where we're going to end up and what we're going to teach from and we're going to live in this class. But this is interesting to me, anyhow. So now we're going to make a, a short left turn into Nerd Valley, all right? Just a short... <laughs> One line, one, one street into Nerd Valley. Just as a reminder, the Targum speaks of Elihu as a relative of Abraham. Targum is commonly thought of as a first century A.D. Aramaic interpretation translation of the Hebrew Bible, but technically the word Targum originally meant any translation of the Old Testament into any language. You very rarely will hear that, but that's really what Targum means. So now I know you feel that the uh, price of your class was worth it. We're all good, right? Now we're leaving Nerd Valley. Now just to be fair, I'm going to give you a dissenting opinion on Elihu's lineage and being the author. Ellicott's commentary says that the only thing you can infer from Elihu's lineage being included in the book is that he's specifically a real person and that Elihu serves to show that it was a real, not an imaginary person. This commentary doesn't think it, it proves that he wrote the book. So... <clears throat> Uh, the other thing is this, much is made of the fact that since God did not address Elihu, that God meant that God had zero concern, had outright disdain for him, for what he had said. Um, I, don't, I think that's a stretch. I want to set that foundation right away. Uh, I, when you study Job, when you get to Elihu, one of the things you will see, uh, commentators disagree on a lot about Elihu. And, uh, and serious commentators. You know, I've spoken about commentators with a low view of scripture. Those are usually easily to refute. These are major guys, major commentaries that have differences of opinion on Elihu. But what you will hear often if you get into a deep dive is, well, God never even responded to him. God never even, you know, he wasn't worth God's time. In, the, in next week's class, I'm going to suggest and show you why I think God did respond to Elihu. So I don't agree with that. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you next week. You gotta show up next week. That's that's there you go. So when God, and this is the, this is remember we talk often about what's the practical lesson we can learn, and there's the theological lesson, there's the doctrinal lesson, and there's the practical lesson. Um, teaching any of the word of God for us in this day, we have the benefit of hindsight, we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit if you are in the faith. Uh, and if you're not, I encourage you to, to um, seek that out. But we also are studying this in, in the light of the New Testament and the gospel. So a lot of what I'm going to do is tie in what we have from the New Testament and how this book ties into it. But 
when this is a pet peeve of mine, um, when you're studying, you'll often hear pastors and teachers go on and on and on about things because of something, one sentence in a book, and then God is silent. Uh, and then they're, they're, they're filling in the blank. Well, he meant this, and he must have meant that, and because I have this personal feeling, I know God lines up with it. Um, my suggestion when you're studying the Bible is when God is truly silent in an issue, leave it alone. And I don't mean that, that he's silent in the synoptic gospels, but he really brings it out in John. I'm, I'm talking about silent. God doesn't say why he might not have re responded to Elihu. I, I think he kind of did. I'm not positive, but I'll tell you why next week. But let's say he didn't. Next. There's nothing in the book that tells us why. But I can't tell you how many teachers I spent a lot of time listening to that went on and on and on about why God was silent. We don't have a clue. It's not in the, it's not in the Bible, and it's nowhere mentioned in the Bible anywhere. So we're going to leave it alone. Don't lose any sleep over it. Um, so some say that Elihu represents Christ. This, this is a figure of Christ, a symbol of Christ down the road. Um, I'm going to give you the reasons. I, I wouldn't teach that, but I, I see why it happens, and I'm going to share with you these other, these other scholars' reasons because at the end of the day, you're going to go make your own decisions on all this stuff. So they, they lay claim to much of his speeches, lay the foundation for proper theology regarding God and our reconciliation to him because a lot of what Elihu talks about is God's sovereignty, how God, what it is that... Uh, God it desires from us to be accepted by him. These are themes. Some of those themes occurred in the first three friends, but not, not like Elihu. We're gonna get, I'm going to show you the huge stark differences between these guys. But uh, in, in chapter 33, from 23 to 26, there's a huge area also about prophecy, and we're gonna, that's the most asked part of Elihu's speeches, so we're going to spend a couple minutes on that in a minute. Job never replied to God, uh, Job never replied to Elihu, rather, and God speaks directly after Elihu. So some feel that this means Elihu represents Christ, leading Job to be ready to hear from God. That's an opinion. I agree that much of Elihu's speeches reflect true theology and truisms about God. I don't think there's enough evidence in the language that I could say this is a symbol of Christ. That's just me. So I don't believe he represents Christ specifically because of all the arrogance and how he used some of the truisms about God. So let's look at those. He's, Elihu is the only one to address Job by name. Nobody else in the book addresses Job by name. Some see this as arrogance and some see it as familiarity. If he was one of the three servants that I think is possible that came to see Job and tell him about the calamities, it makes a little bit more sense. He knows who Job is. So that's just me trying to force a square peg into a round hole. I like the idea that he might be one of those three guys, but he's also the only one that, that calls Job by name. That's interesting. It strengthens Elihu's real existence as opposed to a poetic character. Elihu delivers four speeches which last six chapters. That makes it the longest of all the speeches from chapter 32 to 38. It's longer than 12 Old Testament books. It's longer than 17 New Testament books or letters. So neither Job nor their friends ever respond when he's done. I was thinking they probably don't want to say anything. They want him to stop talking. So, <laughs> so if I say anything, he might go on for another six chapters. So let's just hope he shuts up and moves on. 
So no one in the book ever acknowledges Elihu. But why? I mean, it's interesting. But he has the largest amount of discourse in the book. Um, but it, this also supports the later added theory. If you're going to drop something into the book, the reason why I don't think a different author, one of the reasons, just came in and decided to add to this book is that a lot of what Elihu says is reiterated from the first three. It's, it's wrong to not think that that's true. I've heard some teachers say it's all, uh, it's all unique, and it's not. It's really not. I'm not going to bore you with all the details. Just trust me. There's a lot of what he says are just reiterations of the other three. So if you or I are going to walk into Shakespeare's Macbeth and we're going to add something to that piece of literature, chances are we're not going to repeat what he just said in, in 15 other chapters. We're, we're doing that to add something new. And since there's so much that's a reiteration of the first three, I feel that that kind of proves that it was the same author who you and I, when we, we make our points, we tend to make them over and over again. If you're the new author, sticking your thoughts in the middle of someone else's book, you want to do it because you think you have something new. So that's another reason why I don't think it's a different author. So some of the verses that some commentaries use to support their position that Elihu is the person in the book that imparts godly wisdom, and there's, uh, there's, great, there's great scholars that I have massive respect for that believe this wholeheartedly. Here's some of the verses. And I forgot to preface this. There's no way that uh, in a class on Job in six classes that I have one to do on Elihu that I'm going to be able to handle everything. I'm going to hit the high points and what I think are the main things that we can deal with and that we can um, use to juxtapose between Job's answers and the other ones. But I can't hit everything. There is a huge amount of apologetics in Elihu's speeches on science and creation and prophecy, a huge amount. And one of the things that um, one of the pastors and I are talking about now is to do an apologetics book just on Job, maybe next year. I need a nap. So between now and next year. So yeah, you're shaking your head. I'll, I'll come. You and I will do it together. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm only kidding. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing to think about. I'm just sharing that with you because um, most people avoid the book. Most people don't want to read about somebody suffering and God not answering their prayers. But the other side of the book of Job is it's, it is huge. There's more apologetics in Job than Genesis in the first five books of the Bible. All right, so I flapped my gums enough about that. Some verses that some commentaries use to support their position that Elihu is the person in the book that imparts godly wisdom. Chapter 33, 28 to 30, it says, God rescued me from the grave, and now my life is filled with light. Yes, God does these things again and again for people. He rescues them from the grave so they may enjoy the light of life. Wonderful verse. Who has, um, I gave 34 verse 4, and who has 34 verse 10? Come on, I handed out 500 things. I, no one, I didn't give that to anybody? 34 4 or 34 10? Um, well, 32 is not yet. That's coming up. All right, so I'll read it. I'm sorry. Uh, so let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. 34.10, listen to me, you who have understanding. Everyone knows that God doesn't sin, that the Almighty can do no wrong. So let me back up a little bit just to your, your point. We're teaching Elihu in the whole book of Job from a thematic approach because I can't go expositional, which means verse by verse. 
I don't have the time. So that's why I didn't start in chapter 32 because making these points, I'm grabbing from all the chapters. It's a thematic approach. I don't have the time to go expositional. So Elihu makes a high statement on God's sovereignty. This is an amazing statement. Chapter 34, 14 to 15. If God were to take back his spirit and withdraw his breath, all life would cease and humanity would turn again to dust. So one of the things I wanted to, that came to my mind that I wanted to ask you guys to pipe in on, like since we've been teaching on the beginning of Job, you hear the word sovereignty a lot, you hear the word spirit of God, you hear wisdom of God a lot. Um, if you're like me, sometimes these, I get just so used to these words. I'm not really moved by them, right? But if you, you think what, what's going on here, one of the things that the book of Job is teaching us is that we have the spirit of the almighty God resident in us. And that's something that we should be in awe and thankful for. And it's also part of the teaching of the book of Job on how we can handle suffering. But I think... If you're like me, you get used to it because we talk about it so much. It's just a word. It becomes another word, not really a, a, a something that we moves us, right? And it's the same thing with sovereignty. It, it doesn't impress us until we're mad about it usually or we, we want to talk about it or we have to study it. But the words, hopefully by the, you know, by the time the class is over, will have a different meaning than they did when you started. Um, who has uh, 36, verse 4, and who has 33, 31 to 33? Okay, we'll come into that. Anyone have 33, 31 to 33? Okay, good. We'll come into that. So another point, these commentaries um, here where we have, they've given me long enough microphone cords. Everybody's going to speak. I'll let you know. I'll give you a heads up. Thanks. <clears throat> So another point the commentaries make and the teachers often make that, that about Elihu speaking right of God is that um, God speaks directly after Elihu. So they feel that that means that Elihu is, a for, is basically preparing every, not only just Job, but the three friends to hear from God. That's his role in the book, they feel. Job never responds because if that's really his role, it's God's turn. But Job does defend himself. So I think that that sort of nullifies that whole, that whole argument. So here's a few verses on why I don't share the same high view of Elihu, that he is a, he's basically a symbol of Christ. I think he's more like John the Baptist. It makes more sense to me that he, he sort of symbolizes the role of John the Baptist. He's part, when, we, when we're done, you're going to see that he's kind of yelling at everybody. He's basically yelling at everybody. He's got an opinion about how everybody should have done what they did, why they failed. Um, John the Baptist was not arrogant like that. We've never read anything about him being arrogant like that. But he had no problem. Um, I always thought, you know, he sort of seems Italian to me. He had no problem telling you what he thought, when he thought it, what he thought of you, what you should do, how you should do it. And that's a lot of what Elihu does in his book. So I'm comfortable thinking that he, there's, a, there's a symbolic comparison to John the Baptist, not Christ. Because there's too many things that Elihu says that are arrogant and wrong. So it's just too easy to say, oh, he's, he's preparing the way for everybody to hear about God. I kind of felt that it was almost lazy. Here's my reasons for Elihu accuses Job falsely of several things, and his arrogance can't be ignored. 
Here's a few things he accuses Job of in 34.8. He says, Job chooses evil as a companion. Absolutely not true. In 34.9, he says, uh, Job claims it was a waste of time to try to please God. And that's, that's close, but not a cigar, because what Job said was, I can't believe that I've been serving you and I'm suffering like this. It was more of a question. He's not telling everybody it's been a waste of time. It's a question out of, out of his heart. So who has 34 verses 35 to 37? Yay! Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Okay, you're up. Thanks. His words lack insight. I'll get it to her. Joel, you deserve the maximum penalty for the wicked way you have talked, for you have added rebellion to your sin. So that's Ellie who's speaking. That doesn't sound like Jesus to me. So who has um, 36.4? Would you pass that down? Sorry. I'm making you work today. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Who has 33, 31 to 33? I do. Perfect. Mark this well, Job. Listen to me, for I have more to say. But if you have anything to say, go ahead. Speak, for I am anxious to see you justified. But if not, then listen to me. Keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Shut up and listen to me. Doesn't really sound like Jesus to me. 34.16, if you are wise, you will listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. 35.8, your sins affect only people like you. That's Elihu. Okay, so... I'm, I'm not sure what I'm missing with these scholars. I just don't, I'm not comfortable with that as a thought. Uh, in other words, what Elihu was saying in 35.8 about your sins only affect people like you is like, this, you know, you're really one of the bad ones. God's not interested in you. In 32, chapter 32, we got to 32 finally, uh, 12 to 14, New Living Translation. Does anyone have that by any chance, the New Living Translation? It's easy to read from. Sometimes when you're teaching, it's great to use because it's very clear and to the point. Elihu says to the friends, don't tell me Job is too wise for us that only God can convince him of his sin. If Job had been arguing with me, I would not answer him with your kind of logic. In other words, I'm much smarter than the rest of you. And then 36.4, Elihu says, I'm telling you nothing but the truth. For I am a man of great knowledge. It doesn't sound like Jesus to me. Okay? Now, the reason why I do this is because I, I don't, it's the right thing to do when you're doing a class like this. I, you have the right to hear everyone's side. You have, and these are reputable scholars. These are people that I learn from. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm a guy that reads. These are, the, these are scholars. Uh, but I don't, I don't see it. And I don't think it's a legitimate way to look at Elihu. So that's the general background of Elihu. Now part two, the setting Elihu makes his cameo in, right? This is, this is what Elihu walks into. Yep. Isn't that worthy of rebuke? You said Elihu was never rebuked like the three friends were. But some of that, like your sins affect only people like you, doesn't that sound like it's something worthy of rebuke by God? We're rebuking him. I know. <laughs> Wait till you get to the last class. So you're saying he was addressed. I think he was. I think he was. I think, uh, so I'll share this with you. 
when you go back and you read the and you read God's first response, and we're gonna we're gonna get into this next week, it's it's possible that God is rebuking him first because he has the most to say about God, and a lot of it is true, and a lot of it is good, and that's why this guy's an enigma. This is not one that you can't come down on one side or the other. But I, I, I prayed for a while on what is, why is this in the book? Why is this, why is Elihu in the book? Now he's the youngest and there's a couple things we're going to get into. But what, and then I think the Holy Spirit gave me a thought that I'll share with you guys and you guys can decide what you think about it. But I think he gets rebuked by God. I think that's God's first words is to Elihu. Yeah, and God does rebuke the three friends specifically, and we're going to get into that in the last class. And the last class is such a wonderful, it's just God doing what God does. This is an amazing book. It is so perfect in theology. It's so perfect in context, um, and the doctrine and the practical application that we have in our lives, um, I I think it's life-changing. And when, when we you know, you guys pray for me. If we do a good job next week, I think you'll see why I'm so excited about next week. So the setting that Elihu makes his cameo in, we're going to see where Elio, Elio, my, my Italian is coming out, right? To see where Elihu starts, we need to see where Job leaves off. Now I'm going to read this because I wouldn't do this to you. If you want to follow with me, it's 29. And we're going to go from 1 to 13. I think it's important to set the stage. This is what Elihu is listening. Remember, Elihu has been sitting there listening to everything. He's heard everything all the three friends said. If you, if you dip into the Rickism folder, he was there when, when Job had his sufferings. So Elihu has heard everything. And here's what Job says at the end. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on my mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved of me, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless, who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. So these are the words that Elihu, some of the last words that he hears is Job defending himself and speaking about what it was like before he was struck. So these are the words where Elihu decides to speak. In chapter 32, 1, it says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. The Hebrew used here infers that they had exhausted everything physically and spiritually. They were done. They had nothing else. They had nothing else to say. Job had convinced them to just stop talking. We don't know what they thought. 
But one of the things we do know is Job has stayed true to his testimony. He still hasn't cursed God. And he's still suffering. And I think it was years. And that's, we're not going to revisit that. Go listen to the other classes. But years is different than days, right? Years is, so at the end of the day, one of the things, um, I'll blame coming back from the jazz festival on this improvisation. I'm going to make a left here. Um, one of the things that I think Job wants us to come to grips with, whether you're going through it now or it's happened in the past or maybe it's preventive maintenance or maybe God wants you to be able to minister to somebody else, is that the Bible teaches us that sometimes God is going to be silent on this side of heaven based on the suffering you and I go through. And the only answer we have is that God loves us. And, the, and we have more answers now, being in the new covenant. If you are in the faith, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's interactions with people in the Old Testament is different than the New Testament, and that's another class. But let's just say that in the New Testament, you have God, the Holy Spirit, resident inside you to lead you and guide you into all truth, it says. But one of the things that Job wants to teach us is how to contend with God's sovereignty when we never get an answer. That's the hard part of teaching the book. And I said this last week, you know, we're going to do the wisdom chapter. And I got an email, it was like, I never, I expected an answer. Well, there is no answer in the wisdom chapter. It's about wisdom and where to get it. It's not like I'm going to answer your, I'm not going to give you the winning lottery tickets. It's not what the wisdom chapter is about. It's where do you go to find wisdom? It lists all the wonderful things that man does that are also, what do we say? They were level one gifts of wisdom. But that's not where you got wisdom for your trials and your suffering. That's godly wisdom that's personal, that can only be gotten from God. And it's a hard thing to contend with. We're, as Christians, you might be called to suffer horribly. And you might not know why. And I certainly don't know why. But my goodness, one of the things that we have is we have Christ as an example. We can literally say that God didn't take the easy way out, that God suffered certainly more than we ever can imagine. And it was one of the things that helped me stay a Christian after I had accepted Christ. As I studied the life of Christ, I realized, well, you know, this is a different book. This is a different religious book. You know, all the heroes of, the, of, of that book are either flawed like me, or when you look at Jesus, God didn't spare him either. So that's part of this book. But remember, you have a book that spans maybe thousands of years. The oldest dating of it is 3000 BCE. I don't think that's true. I think it's more around 2000 to 1400. But still, it's teaching generation after generation after generation, all the way till now, and who knows how long until Christ comes back. So the lesson is really important, and that's part of the deepest part of the lesson. So that's what Job says. These are the words that Elihu walks into. Um, I mentioned that the Hebrew for the three friends says that they were exhausted. They could no longer contend with Job. He was just continuing to uh, say that he's innocent. He would not curse God and die. He would not lie, and he wouldn't take his own life. So Job continues to accuse God of being unfair and unjust. But Job has not cursed God to end his sufferings. So in my contemporary, contemporary way of putting it, he's thinking biblically on who God says he is and not giving in to Satan and the friends and Elihu's temptation that God had abandoned him. 
what we, we've said this before, probably when you're suffering is the hardest time to think that God is walking with you, right? It's hard when it's really, I'm not talking about your car didn't start, which happened, it happened to my car, but it happened to Evan. <laughs> he had my car this week. Yeah, true suffering, having your car not start. So Satan accused God of the same, remember this, that Satan accused God, of, and Job is accusing God of the same thing Satan did. So God is defending himself against Satan in the heavenly realm, because if, if what a lot of scholars say is Satan wanted Job to curse God and die so that the angels with their free will would also walk away from God by, by doing what Satan did. But Satan, uh, Job is tempted to curse God and die also. And he's accusing God of not being fair. So now God is being accused by both Satan and by Job of the same exact thing. You're not fair. Job said, you're bribing these guys who wouldn't follow you. Satan's saying, I did everything right. How could you make me suffer like this? Okay? Chapter 31. Elihu has learned Job, has heard Job remind everyone of numerous things. Job remained faithful to God and never sought help from other gods. That's a huge temptation. Might not be, you might not be tempted to go to the Baha'i faith or Mormonism, but you might be tempted to drink too much. You might be tempted to do drugs. You might be tempted to just leave the faith. Or because you're having such negative feelings over your sufferings, you might be tempted to just check out, right? Uh, and many people, like I told you, I have, I have friends over the years that have left the faith over suffering. They've left the faith. Or people that just stop going to church because of suffering. If you ask them, they believe. But they are, they are low-hanging fruit for the enemy of their soul, which means that they no longer will be an active ambassador for Christ. That's part of the practical teaching here. That's part of what God wants us to understand here. And the answer isn't overtly complicated it's just hard right there's a saying in music in the studio the KIS saying I don't KISS I don't know if it applies anywhere else keep it sim simple stupid right it might be simple but it's not easy but God's worth it for us to get this doctrine and get this theology ingrained in our thinking so in chapter 31 26 and 27 it says um, Job says, have I looked at the sun shining in the skies or the moon walking down its silver pathway and been secretly enticed in my heart to throw kisses at them in worship? No, never. In other words, that, that was the sun and the moon and the stars was a form of idolatry. It was an ancient religion, you know, sort of astrology. And Job is saying, even now I'm not enticed. I haven't left my faith. We will always be tempted to seek comfort from sources other than the Lord when you're suffering. Friends, drink, drugs, other religions, or often walking away from fellowship of God. So Job reminds everyone listening that he never bragged to put his trust in his wealth in chapter 31, 24 to 25. He never took joy in the neighbor's misfortune, chapter 31, 29. And he was a blessing to those in need, chapter 31, 19 to 21. So finally, Job begs for someone to show him compassion and pleads that everyone listening would believe he is innocent in spite of his outward appearance and loss. Uh, who has um, chapter 31, verses 35 to 36? Anybody? Wonderful. And then next would be, I'm giving you a heads up, next would be um, 32, verse 2 and 3, whoever has that. Okay. 
only someone would listen to me. Look, I will sign my name to my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. So Job is saying, let's go to court. I'm ready. Let's do it. I'm ready. One of the things that's just amazing is he's basically, he still is holding true to his faith. And time is, the clock is ticking. Um, that was 31, 35, and 36, right? So that's the backdrop. So we're in the last section here, which is Elihu's Dialogues. So we don't have the time to get into all the weeds of Elihu, but we're going to do a thematic approach, not an expositional approach, which is thematic, not verse by verse. Uh, chapter 32 to 37 is Elihu's demand for Job to repent is different than the three friends. The friends called Job to repent for some unknown sin that by their sight, they've decided he committed, right? Elihu calls Job to repent for questioning God's justice after he started suffering. It's a different temptation to Job. Elihu had a point, though, because in chapter 34, 9, Job says, uh, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. So remember, Isaiah and I were like, well, isn't that a curse? <laughs> Sounds like a cursing God to me. In my house, I wouldn't have seen Sunday if I said talk like that to my dad. Um, but in the context of that verse, Job is, is begging God for an answer as to why he's suffering. He's not saying it's a truism. That's, and there, that's what happens. You get distorted when you're being tempted to, to fall away from God. In chapter 36, Elihu says, God's justice will be revealed in God's due time. So it's the first time we have one of the friends willing to say something the other three friends. Well, he's not a friend. He's never called a friend of Job. So if I say that, throw something at me. But it's the first time that um, you hear someone saying to Job, okay, God's, you know, this is for down the road. Your suffering is for down the road. Whereas the other friends were like, look, you've sinned. This is, a, this is um, quid pro quo. You've sinned. You now have gotten um, the result of that sin. Curse God and die and let God do his justice. Elihu is saying, no. Uh, obviously, they, one of his big complaints was that the friends couldn't prove it. And he was sitting right there. And that's one of, so since they couldn't prove it, he's not taking up that mantle again. He's saying it's, it's preventive maintenance for down the road or God is doing something because you have pride in your heart that only he can see. And again, how would Elihu know this is my question. And it's down the road. So it's a different temptation. One of the practical lessons here is when we're suffering is these temptations are not going to be the same all the time. They're going to be different. And it is our, our acceptance of the sovereignty of God. And I, and I always share with you a suggestion that, under, that understanding the grace of God is the best way to understand the sovereign, to, sovereignty of God, right? Grace is about humility, God's unmerited favor. Sovereignty is about his ownership of us and accepting what he does or allows in our lives. And you might not get an answer to it on this side of heaven. That's a hard calling. That's a hard calling, but it's a calling that we're called to. This is, this is the varsity side of our faith, guys. This is not the fun, you know, I'll never leave you or forsake you or ask what you want in my name and it will be given to you. 
even those verses are taken out of context. I like to, I like to te teach against those verses, but the way that they're misused in the name and claimant movement. But this is the hard part of our faith, something that we need to spend time understanding. So Job does, and Job is questioning God's justice and he's questioning God's fairness by this point. Elihu is now the youngest and he steps into this. So in chapter 36, Elihu says God's justice will be revealed in God's due time. In 36, it's Job, he says God can exercise his sovereignty by judging all things later that God doesn't owe Job justice immediately. That's another one of those verses that some scholars say, see, that's something Jesus would say. Well, yeah, Jesus would say it, but not in this way. The way that the, the tenses here are negative tenses. It's not designed to give comfort. It's designed to point a finger, right? Um, so just the cross-reference of God, this thing, this upholds the view of God's sovereignty. It's a true statement, right? But also amplifies the doctrine of God's grace because if God is waiting patiently, which is what that verse says, then God is waiting patiently for those to come to Christ. There's a patience there for all long-suffering of God, right? And, and in the middle of that, that's where you guys come in. That's where we come in. People are going to look at you if they've known you've been through suffering or they know that you're a believer because you're supposed to have all the answers when they're suffering. You can bet the farm that when people around you are suffering and they don't not in the faith, you're eventually going to get a phone call, right? Romans 2, 6, 11 is a cross-reference. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 is a cross-reference. So the content of the chapters. Elihu's speeches go back and forth between sincere concern for Job and then stoic religious legalism. So that's where I think he goes off the reservation. He becomes a legalist in some of the things he says about God. But Elihu's first response, who has uh, chapter 22, 2, and 3? Oh, come on, really? 30, what did I say, 22? 32. Yeah, we're going backwards. 32, 2, and 3? Bingo. Yahtzee. And who has 32, 11, and 12? Me. Wonderful. Okay. So Elihu's first response is of anger bordering on rage toward the previous three friends and then of Job. You got to be careful. When your first response is rage, mm -hmm. your first thoughts are probably judgmental. They're not loving. Thank you. With anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. So you have a complete setup right there that, is, that Elihu can hear. All three friends. Now, Zophar didn't show up for the third dialogue. He was, he was the angry guy. He came out swinging. He, you know, Eliphaz was the most compassionate. Bildad uh, built on Eliphaz's, but also had things to say. Eventually, they all got frustrated that they weren't winning the argument. Zophar didn't even show up for the third, for this part of the dialogue. Yeah. Um, can you finish your point? Um, so it sounded, <clears throat> so I'll make a statement and ask a question. Um, I think righteous anger is when like, you're angry because someone else is being hurt or because there's injustice being done. However, in that, in that verse that was just read, it sounded like um, he was angry because God's character was being put in question. And would that be considered a righteous anger as opposed to a judgmental anger? 
I agree with you. Remember we talked about this, that everybody in this book is trying to defend God. Everybody. Uh, in a very warped way, you can almost say it of Satan, because Satan's going, hey, God, come on, man. We, these guys don't really love you. You're just bribing them to love you. So it's a sort of a warp. But even if you take him out of it, everyone's trying to defend God. And I don't want to minimize, and I hope nothing I've ever said minimizes, because we've, we've often said that a lot of things they say are true. Because a lot of things they say, who has the next verse? Who has uh, 32, 11, 12? Okay, when we get there. Um, I agree with you. I think that there, you can read that both ways. Um, by the time we're done, you get to make a decision about Elihu based on the combination of how he, how he handles these things. But yeah, that's a verse where I think it's righteous anger. I think it's a defense of God. And he starts out being so enraged. Now, let's remember, Elihu is the youngest guy, right? So I'm going to walk over to this table. Young people never start out getting angry, do they? <laughs> right? They never just start out being angry. So you can't get out. The doors are locked. So, yeah, when we're younger, it's our first response often. Even if we're mild-mannered, we, we tend to lose our temper and we tend to go off that way. It's a tendency there. But Elihu jumps out of, it says he was enraged because he was defending God. He felt that they had failed, and he also realized if they didn't prove that he sinned, I don't have anything. I can't say, hey, Eliphaz proved it, therefore... So now he's going after Job in another way. So yeah. So 32, 11, and 12. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what you say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. There he goes. He, he lets you know right off the bat what he's mad about. You didn't win the argument. Okay. Um, to, yep. to your point, I, I can hear judgment in that. I can hear him pushing him to repent as opposed to allowing him to go through the process with God. I can hear the judgment in that. Right. So it's a call, it's the Hebrew progression of thought gets a little bit tighter and tighter and tighter until you, you realize that a lot, of what, a lot of what he says eventually in the last, uh, the middle chapters are just redundant. But the beginning and the end of his speeches are, you know, they start out, there's compassion in the beginning again, but he ends up being very frustrated and angry at the end. Um, I, I just wrote this down, that we should all be careful when our first, first words are really out of anger. They're probably, our first thoughts are judgmental, and that's not the way you want to approach anyone that's suffering, right? I'm always going to be forcing practical, theolo practical biblical lessons in this class because I think... I think whether you know it or not, you showed up for a Job class. God's probably going to use you in your life to minister to people in your lives. He's probably going to use you. Um, so whenever I see something glaringly practical, I'm going to share it. In chapter 28. Um, Question? Yep. I think what we're kind of saying here, isn't the, can you give Elihu an A for effort? Because the righteous indignation is a good thing. But he's just ultimately wrong, and he's wrong outside the bounds of like human understanding. I mean, his assertion of Job, or his beef with Job, is yeah, you're not just admitting to what you must only know that you did wrong, and the rest of us can't perceive it. That's not that's a for effort territory, right? Like he's still, like you said, he's trying to defend God, and he doesn't hear a good argument from these other three friends. 
but he's just ultimately wrong because he can't see all of the work that God's doing behind the scenes, right? So he's that sounds like sincere pursuit of holiness to me. It's just insufficient information. Yeah, and that's when you read the book. We it should can't be Jesus, right? Like you were saying, some people are thinking that he's some sort of embodiment of representative. But by the time we're done, we're going to have a lot more information about Elihu. So I'm not going to answer that question now because I, because you're my son, I don't have to. <laughs> sounds like the right. Sounds like every day you were at the house when you grew up in the house, right? Um, but clouding his opinion, there's quite a few contradictions in chapter 33. Right, 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 right. I mean, this is the point. Like, why, why did the Holy Spirit start out Elihu's speech with how enraged he was? I mean... Is there a word study on the word rage? Is it some sort of a... It's, it's, not form, it's enraged, like can't... So different than like Jesus over Oh, I wouldn't compare. I couldn't compare. I don't think there's a comparison because that's Jesus. Well, but that was that was pretty raging rage, wouldn't you say? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty violent anger. Purpose, yeah, but the, the they used the, the yeah they used the words the way they did um, to give if you want to give him the best benefit of the doubt. It was like he he was so co- upset about God not being vindicated. That he was enraged that these three, these remember the three friends are the three most brilliant men of their countries. They didn't go to the pool hall and get these guys. These are the three most wealthy and brilliant men in the comf- countries. They were Job's friends. They were his peers, just like our friends are our peers. So if they couldn't do it, I think Elihu was wondering like how he was going to do it. But you're going to see that Elihu goes way beyond the three friends, and and it'll answer your question. So. Yeah, because he, they're all four of them are sitting there wanting to vindicate God, but none of them ask God for any wisdom. None of them have asked God, and there's not one verse where they go to God in prayer. What did Job do for his kids? He did sacrifices for his kids at that time, to to hopefully have God's, uh, in case, it says, in case his, God's, his kids even thought about it was preventative intercessory prayer. love, care for the person. It was, a, it was a, um, a practice of the day. They didn't even do that. They didn't have, let's say they, didn't, they weren't going to, they were all, as Dr. Ar, uh, Gleason Archer says, these people were fiercely monotheistic, and I think they all worshiped the same God. So they did nothing. This was all there. Like I said, if you love symbolism, these guys represent worldly wisdom and all the different facets of it. It's so, the presumptuousness that God hates, right? He upholds, he lifts up the lowly, and he abhors the arrogant. For you to think that you, a human being, know the infinite thoughts of God, and you're going to decide this is what's happening and why, let me tell you, mm. there's a lack of, of humility in yeah. any time we ever go there. Not that I... I think at this stage of the game, one of the pictures that the book is painting for us is exactly that, is that we have to contend. Things that we might take for granted um, 
are very real when somebody needs us and they're suffering and we fail them and we're Christians, they remember that. They remember that. And they should. They should. Not that we're perfect, but we should do better. Yeah, and that's another perfect example, right? You don't hear a word from them about anything. They sat there and they looked at Joe. And I think Joe was waiting for God to speak up and vindicate him. And I think they were sitting there waiting for Job to confess his sin. And the reason why it stopped is Job finally spoke up. So in chapter 32, 6 to 10, this is a great lesson that we, we talked about last week. I'm gonna, the young guys will like me after this one. They're so mad at me. Uh, I am young in years, you are aged, therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. This is Elihu speaking. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me, let me also share, declare my opinion. One principle in chapter 28 that, that God makes clear is that um, godly wisdom comes from God as a gift. It's no respecter of persons, and nowhere in chapter 28 does God put an age requirement on it. As older people in the faith, we have to have a humility of heart to recognize when, and young can mean young in the faith. You could be 75 years old and be in the faith two weeks. That's what I mean by young, right? We have to recognize that whoever's going to minister to us, if they have humility in Christ, then they have a p the potential to, to minister to Billy Graham or whoever. And the other side of that, and so what Elihu is saying, look, I'm the youngest, but I'm the smartest out of all of you three. So there's where he's making the wrong left turn. But, but the principle is what, again, it's interesting. This is why the wisdom uh, literature is often very hard to, to deal with when you're teaching it. But one thing that's interesting here, this is a book of wisdom. It's the oldest book in the wisdom. It's certainly the oldest book in the Bible. Um, but these wisdom chapters, chapter 28, and, and Elihu is poetry. It's written as a poetic form. It's interesting that Elihu comes in after the wisdom chapter. Wisdom sets up all of man's wisdom that's, that is great and gifts from God. But what Job needed, he wasn't going to get from anybody. He, he's only get his answers from God. But it also sets the bar, whereas it doesn't, it's not telling you that age is going to all of a sudden, because you've been in the faith, you have more wisdom than someone that's been. It has to do with your heart. If you're right with God, then God can speak to you. If you're humble with God, then God can speak to you. If you're arrogant and pride, if you and I are arrogant and prideful, we don't have anything to offer. We're the person that when someone's suffering sees us coming, they hope we don't come as opposed to the person that they see them coming down the road and they're happy to see them coming, right? So, it, yeah. No, no, I was going to say that I thought this was an interesting lesson that this, Elihu is specifically feeding off of chapter 28 that age doesn't all of a sudden indicate, I don't have a right to say I, I'm mature in the Lord. I don't have a right to say that. It's, and age has nothing to do with it. Um, I was just thinking, too, about... Um, 
so I don't know either of your names, but just talking about like rage, um, and you had kind of asked the question, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but like, you know, the rage of Jesus flipping the tables, that comparable to Elijah's rage, and I think what we're discussing here kind of, um, I think rage is being overwhelmed by emotions, but I think you can have like a renewing of your mind where your emotions are aligned in such a way that you can integrate your emotions to be purposeful and to be useful in the way that they, in the ways that you express yourself. Like, Jesus was aligned with the will of the Father to the point where his emotions, when they got to that boiling point, it was still for the right reason. And it seems like when Elihu's emotions are getting to the boiling point, it becomes very obvious that, like, he's trying to correct these people because their arguments are inconveniencing his worldview rather than that he's really concerned about Job. Whereas when Jesus right. got incensed right, right. and his emotions overwhelmed him, it was because he was concerned for the well-being of the Israelites. He was concerned for the temple being desecrated. Like, so I don't, I don't think the Bible teaches, it's not like this stoic, like, oh, let's cut out our emotions and never get angry at anything, but it's, let's be wise and pray so that when our emotions overwhelm us, it's for the right reasons. Like, God doesn't want us to be emotionless beings. He's not an emotionless being. So I think, like, it becomes very clear that Yep. Maturity, maybe. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I mean, it's a matter of not, it's almost like not what you say, it's how you say it very yeah. often, right? Um, did I give anyone chapter 36, verse 4? Wonderful. Could you read that, please? For, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with me. Truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So Evan, there he's making that left turn, right? So now we have Elihu who's now perfect in knowledge. Maybe Jesus of some cult, right? Um, so these are, I, I just, I wasn't sure why these commentators that I, because I, I made it a point to read the people I disagreed with consistently um, they had no problem with a lot of this they just they would gloss over these ver and that's just one of them I'm not even done yet but uh, this is where Elihu is going the, perfect in knowledge so one view is that he's claiming per now this is this this is the simple this guy is giving her Elihu more grace than I'm giving Mrs. Job listen to this um, Elihu is just claiming perfect knowledge on this topic as God has perfect knowledge in all matters uh, okay um, the Cambridge College Commentary says this. Um, the speaker, Elihu, makes a higher claim than to just sincerity here. He claims the character of absolute truth for his teaching by saying he is perfect in knowledge. This is troublesome for Elihu to use this phrase because in a slightly different form, the phrase perfect in knowledge is applied to God in Job 37, 16, and 1 Samuel 2, 3. So Elihu's making that left turn. He's, he's really rounding the wrong bend here. So some commentators give him the benefit of the doubt, <clears throat> um, and they use the language structure because it's not definitive. Uh, there's enough commentators that are reputable that say absolutely not. I'm not comfortable with saying that he wasn't going in the wrong direction here. So Elihu's defense of God comes out of chapter 33. Does who has chap, uh, chapter 33, 1 to 7? Okay, and who has, well, I'm reading the rest. Chapter 33, 1 to 7. Who has it? Thank you. 
But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. So do you think that's compassion? Or do you think it's arrogance? Or what do you think about that? That's Elihu speaking to Job. But now hear my speech, O Job. Listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Yeah. Uh, somebody with sincere intentions, but who's not seeking God for wisdom. Bingo. Bingo. I don't need it. All no, the person with all knowledge is here. We just right. You're right. That's and where's the practical lesson for anybody reading the book? We have to be careful that we don't chapter and verse people to death. You know, we have to be careful how we use God's word and how we use it for ourselves. But here's the one that just made me laugh. Now, just, just think of this for a second. The final sentence, behold, Job, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. So let me see if I got this right. The youngest guy in the whole group. Now, Job is contended with Satan. He's contended with God's silence. He's contended with Eliphaz, who was considered one of the most brilliant men of his day, Bildad, who was considered one of the most brilliant men of his day, and Zophar. And the young whippersnapper speaks up and he's saying, oh, don't be afraid of me. Oh, are you kidding me? My hand won't be heavy upon you. Yeah, you could see Job saying, oh, yeah, you're the guy I'm worried about. <laughs> you're the one that I've been worried about this whole time. So you see where this is what the progression of thought in the Hebrew is, is basically leading us in this direction, which is there's a sincerity of thought. And Elihu is making good points about the difference between how he's approaching Job and how he wants Job to look at his sufferings and be relieved of them. The difference is, is that he's arrogant about it. You know, we all can quote verses. I have a buddy who has, um, um, per, uh, what do you call it, a photographic memory. Now, thankfully, he's a beautiful, humble Christian, but, you know, he'll just quote all of Romans out of the top of his head. But I've grown up, I think I mentioned this, I, I, most of you people have been here since day one, you might have, so I apologize, but I, when I was going to Bible college, um, brand new Christian, went to Bible college and started studying, I, I was ecstatic that, the, that my Christianity had a theological and intellectual side to it. I was just excited about that. I was so happy that it wasn't just us all sitting around, you know, sing, doing John 3.16 all day long. After a couple of months, I got to meet some of the professors and the teachers, and they were the most arrogant, 
narcissistic, self-absorbed people I've ever met in the faith. The, the, you, if you went up to ask a question, they would decide if you were worth their time. You know, you know oh, the student, oh, that student, yeah. Oh, you, I mean, I could go on and on. My point is that I think when, you, when I studied Elihu this last couple of weeks, there's a progression of thought and it, gets, and it changes over time. And although he has true things to say, which we have to accept, to your point, Evan, it's that, it's that lack of humility for God and God's wisdom in his life. It's, it's also a profound lack of compassion because at first he equates himself with the righteousness that Job has. Yeah. And then he equates himself with the level of suffering that Job is going through. He talks about the references to, to you know, my feet are in shackles and God keeps close scrutiny and watch over me. So it's, it's all over the place with him. Yeah. But now I want to be nice. I'm a Christian, so I'm going to be nice, right? <laughs> On the positive side, Elihu speaks humbly and rightly of God. 32.7, I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. That's reverence to the aged, right? I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. So Elihu is saying, I'm not going to just say what you want me to say. I'm going to share what I think God is telling me to share. I'm going to share right things about God. Um, he doesn't want to re be a respecter of persons. 33, 3 to 4, my words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt there, to the, to the point. Um, the Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So he's, he's making sure that he's letting everyone know that he lines up with the same God that Job and the three friends do. And then 34, 12 says, it is true God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. So he's telling right things about God. So much is made of the fact that God did not even address Elihu. And some of the scholars said that that meant God had zero concern and had outright disdain for what he said. Uh, I think that's a stretch. Uh, and plus, I said, I don't think it's true. I'm going to share why, and we're gonna, you guys can weigh it next week. Um, but we did talk about when the idea of God's silence. If God is silent in something in Scripture, there's enough that he's not silent on that you know, we can spend our days learning. Don't waste your time with the stuff that he's really silent on. Don't, don't fill in the blanks for God. So <clears throat> Elihu does show compassion at times, Isaiah's point. In 33, 3 to 4, he says, My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. He says that over and over again. Uh, Elihu, he, he, he gets emphatic about God's sovereignty. Did I give somebody a ver uh, chapter 37, 10 to 13? Yes. You got it? Yep. Where's the mic? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, the church asked me to, you know, I'm doing with Bob Barker or whoever I'm doing. <laughs> I think it's just good for the people that are listening next week that they hear your, what you're sharing. All right. Uh, he saturates clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. They swirl about, turning round and round at his direction, accomplishing everything he commands them to do only the service of the inhabited world. He causes this to happen for punishment for his land or for his faithful love and mercy. Don't miss this verse. Don't miss this verse. 
They swirl about, turning round and round at his direction, accomplishing everything he commands them to do over the surface of the inhabited world. He causes this to happen for punishment, for his land, or for his faithful love and mercy. Oh my goodness, could you get more across the board for his punishment, for his love, or for his mercy, or for his land? What, give me some ideas of what you, th how do you reconcile that last sentence in that verse? He's covering all those bases. <laughs> That's one way, yeah, absolutely. That's one way to put it. God, this is a, a, an act of nature that Elihu is talking about, but it, it causes punishment. The same act of nature is used for his land, and the same act of nature is for his faithful love and mercy. Hard to fathom, right? This is God reminding us through Elihu of his sovereignty. That an action, there was a, I saw an old, um, I'm an American history buff, there was a thing during the Dust Bowl era where you had farmers on one side of the hill praying for rain. Literally on the other side of the hill, there was so much rain that they lost their crops. Both farmers lost their crops. And they, they shows them praying. I have no idea why that happened. I mean, I'd be an idiot to try to say why that. I have no idea why that happened. But the bottom line is that this is another verse that's telling us an action by God. We don't know how he's using it. We, don't, we just don't know. And I will say again, um, me saying words like this, that they're words. They don't really address the passion and the pain and the personal aspect of whatever someone is going through and suffering. But this is what the Bible teaches us about God and his sovereignty. And it's not to leave us in despair. It's to give us an idea that, look, when it comes to this action, yeah, some of it's like a tsunami. Pick, pick, a, pick a world event. Um, we don't know. But, I, yeah, well, Hawaii is just a perfect example. Dr. U. Ross makes a, a point from a very stoic objective platform where he talks about taking away the human suffering in these areas, that a lot of these things that happen, hurricanes and volcanoes, that they are for the, the, the betterment of the, the planet. Yeah, they're for the betterment of the planet. You know, he did say, look, I'm just going to say, and he literally says it, I'm saying it because it's a true statement. I'm not saying it because I'm a jerk. He goes, but we know there's volcanoes here. Or like in, in New Orleans, you know, it's, you know that's going to flood. It floods every 15 or 20 years. Don't build your house on the, on the dam. The bottom line is we all know why, why, why uh, it's uh, one of the greatest New Orleans jazz places in the world. I, I hope it never goes away. But, you know, he's using common sense. In Hawaii, why are you building villages and cities at the foot of a volcano? That sounds horrible, right, for me to say. But he's saying it from, a, from you know, a stoic platform, which is some of these things that happen in nature are not only bad. They're bad because, you know, we're involved in them. But technically, they're not bad. One interesting positive aspect that I'll say about Elihu, what he's sharing at 37 is a prelude to when God then speaks. It's almost a preface to the way the Lord is going to now reach trouble. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'll give you a little uh, spoiler alert. When uh, God speaks out of the whirlwind, one of the, one of the things you can consider is um, at the end of Elihu's speeches, he's talking about 
the whirlwind coming and the darkening of the sky and the clouds. He's talking about all that. And you know that God speaks and you know that God speaks because it was back then creation was always indicative of the existence of God. So um, a lot of commentators think that, yep, he saw the, he saw the storm coming and God speaks out of the whirlwind. Just we know that God does that. He speaks out of nature, right? So I want to wrap it up to give you guys a, a decent night and not getting out of here too late. Um, this is very important. I'm going to skip some parts. Again, get, the, get my notes so you can get this section. I was thrown off a little bit by not having being recording. I was, I was sort of editing myself slowly, hoping that they would get the, the SIM card in there. I don't know when they did, but um, so I skipped the section. But this is important. Um, if you want to turn to chapter 33, did I give someone um, 12, uh, chap well, no. Did I give someone Hebrews 12, 5 to 6? Yeah. <laughs> I want to make that last point, and then I'm going to talk about this prophetic verse, and then we're done. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. How does that line up with the last verse that Elihu just read? That some of these things are for punishment, some are for God's mercy. It's just the sovereignty of God. It's, they're not giving us a lot more other than that. Um, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. This is the one aspect that we haven't talked about much. I'm not concerned with talking about this aspect in this class, but we know that sometimes we suffer because God's disciplining us. I just can not go the whole class without saying that at all, because eventually that's part of Job's discipline by God. Um, so did we get to, uh, did you guys get to 33, chapter 33? So we're going to look at something that's considered one of the most difficult parts of the Elihu speeches. It's, the, it's a part of the Elihu speeches that's the most uh, discussed from what I read uh, from college professors, and uh, it's the most debated, and um, it's a remarkable piece of scripture. So in, th in chapter 33, 23 to 28, here's what it says. Elihu is speaking, and, he's, and at this point he's been talking to Job about all Job's trials, all Job's sufferings, the, the position that Job is in, the possibility that if Job curses God, he's going to go to Sheol, which is the land of the dead. And they, there was different opinions. It was just the cessation of life. There wasn't a fully formed concept of what it meant uh, to go home to be with the Lord in the Old Testament, certainly here later on. But so here's what it says. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and he says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him, and he sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right. It was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. So this is a widely debated part of Elihu's speech. A few render the meaning, the angel will be the angel of death. Some scholars think it is. Some scholars say 
Uh, they render, render it as Elihu speaking of himself as the mediating angel, but the language structure negates that. It really does. Some scholars think it's true. Some claim it's Christ, not a theophany of Christ, but speaking of Christ himself basically as being that angel. I uh, don't agree with that specifically. I'll tell you why in a minute. The majority of the commentaries that I found believe that this is definitely a prophetic part of Elihu's speech. It is again remarkable that the messianic prophecies appear in writings this old and, in my opinion, pre-Mosaic. I'm going to read you verbatim what two commentaries say so that I don't <coughs> miss the point and I say it properly. Pulpit commentary says this about these verses. It is generally supposed that the angel in these verses of the new covenant is meant. In other words, the angels that in, in Elihu speaking about is the angel of the new covenant, right? And that the whole passage is messianic back in Job. The Jews certainly understood it messianically since they read it on the great day of atonement and they use it in their liturgies with the prayer. Raise up for us the righteous interpreter, it says, Say, I have found a ransom. And that's part of the liturgy. Elihu's knowledge of an interpreter or mediator, one of among a thousand, who should deliver the afflicted man from going down to the pit and find a ransom for him, in verse 24, is certainly very surprising. You think, right? Elihu certainly did not mean to speak of himself as the angel interpreter. Now, I read that one because I don't think this angel being spoken of is Elihu. I, I, don't, I think it's being spoken about the ministry of Christ. The Elkhart commentary says this, this angel who is one among a thousand and discharges the function of the interpreter is a remarkable anticipation of the existence of that function with God which is discharged by the advocate with the Father in 1 John 2.1 and Romans 8.34 and Hebrews 7.25. It goes on to say, it is impossible for us who believe, God bless you, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, not to see in this an indication of what God intended afterwards to teach us concerning the intercession and mediation of the Son and the intercession of the Holy Spirit on behalf of man. Romans 8.26, John 14.16. So what Elihu is referring to here, he's foreshadowing the gospel. In the book of Job, we have another example of the foreshadowing of the gospel. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. It's an amazing thing. So Elihu is also responding to Job's request for a mediator between God and him. In nine, chapter 9, 32 and 33, Job says, For he is not a man as I am, the mediator, that I may answer him, meaning God, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. That term, lay his hand on both of us, means basically holy man and holy God. Who bridges that gap between man and God in court? Who can answer? Who can advocate for the man properly? Only God. So when you, one of the, one of the most amazing things about this book is things like this. You know, talking about the gospel in such pinpoint language about the ministry of Christ back there in, in 1400 or, or 2500 B.C., the angel appears not merely as a declarer of the conditions. This is the Keel and Delich Old Testament commentary. I use it for a lot of Old Testament stuff because they're brilliant on uh, Old Testament usage. 
Kiel and Delitz Old Testament commentary. The angel appears not merely as a declarer of the conditions of the deliverance, but as the mediator. So it's really speaking of Christ. Of this deliverance itself, what follows is the intercession of the angel. The angel, however, is just as a mediator who brings about the favor of God. He renders pardon possible and brings the man into the state for receiving it. If this is not specifically speaking of Christ, it's speaking about an angel explaining the ministry of the Son of God. That's, that's pretty amazing. So in the commentary continued, it says, Elihu expresses it as a fact that the deliverance of man can only be affected by the superhuman being. We know it is in reality accomplished by the man who is at the same time God and from all eternity the Lord of the angels of light, Christ Jesus. So Elihu ends his speech with what I believe is a great irony. He admits that there is a mystery to God that men can't know. All the while, while he's telling Job that he's perfect in knowledge, but he also admits that there's a mystery of God that he can't know. So the Holy Spirit is speaking through Elihu. Um, it, it, does, it is an irony very often. He admits that there is a mystery to God that men can't know, that God does not always give us reasons for what he allows in our lives. Elihu says this over and over again. In chapter 37, 5, um, he says, God does great things which we can't comprehend. Um, I have one friend that I, I just, I, I drive him absolutely nuts when I say, uh, there's a mystery to godliness, I don't know. He's like, you got to know, you got you to gotta know, it's the Bible. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know why God did that. I don't know why God allowed that. And, and that's a level of our faith that a lot of people never get to. They're never comfortable with that. And I, I, I get it. I want answers to a bunch of things. Why I didn't work with Miles Davis. <laughs> you know, that's a real, that's an important one, right? That's, on, that's up on the mount. Um, haven't gotten that answer yet. Uh, 37, 22 to 33, Elihu says, With God there is impressive majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. We're going to have to decide if we can be comfortable with not knowing everything about what God does and why he does it. That's just the level that, of Christianity that a lot of people avoid. Elihu has much correct to say about God, but has way too much to say about himself, in my opinion. Isn't that the beauty of it all? Because we think we're going to go into the Bible, so we're going to get an answer. That's human nature. We want an answer. But this is life, and that's what God is telling us. There is no answer. And we want to criticize Elihu, but I, I hear Ryan in the Sunday messages as I'm reading mirror pops up and I see myself in Elihu, like I want to say he's so right about some things, but he's so wrong about other things. Right. Any of us that don't see that in ourselves need to do a little bit more. Right. Show me my heart, David, kind of. Right. Right. Because we all, I think, have this tendency to get so many things so right that we pull out, but so many things so wrong, too, at the same time. Like, I, I think it's a human extrapolation. We try to go somewhere right. and we get it so wrong. And right. What's the lesson? Be humble and just keep asking God to lead right. you every step of the way and realize just how small and how little we are. Life is too complicated for us to think we know. Right. And that is the answer. So your friend who's saying, I want the answer, that's the answer. Yeah. 
Well, I got an email about, oh, you're doing chapter 28. You know, that's the wisdom chapter. Like, what's it going to tell me? I don't, probably not what you're looking for. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, so th- this is what's wonderful about studying the Word of God. You, you learn practical applications, but we're learning doctrine and theology that's way above what most Christians will ever, ever come to because they don't want to be involved in this type of Christianity, the type of Christianity that lets God be God and where we don't have all the answers. And sometimes that hurts. Sometimes it's painful. And sometimes you really have, um, all you can do is bow your head and your heart. But God doesn't leave us in that, in that position. That one of the stories of the book of Job, and, and I'm so glad we're at the last class because I get to say everything that I've been hold, waiting to say, but the lessons. Um, but one of the lessons is that if we will honor the Lord in the things that we don't understand, he'll honor us. He'll give us that peace that passes understanding. He'll give us that wisdom that comes from above. He'll give us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He'll teach us how to put on the whole armor of God for these times that are, that are difficult. But if you avoid these hard and difficult teachings in the, in the New Testament, you could have your faith shipwrecked. Why, why did God allow Job to suffer in such a way. He lost everything except Mrs. Job and his life. And he lost it as being, why did I, someone, I don't remember who it was that asked me in the second class, like, were these princes, princes worshiping Job? One of the reasons I brought the verse back into this class was, remember we just read about Job was remembering what it was like for him? The princes stopped, um, let me just find it real quick here. Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when everything was the best, right? When the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out, for me streams of oil. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, out of reverence it means. And the aged rose and stood, out of reverence, same reverence. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. In other words, Job is in the house, everything stops. Um, The voice of the nobles was hushed. Their tongue was stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard of Job, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sink for joy. That's the guy who was sitting on a dung heap, scraping his body because he had elephantitis to such a severe degree he got it like that. He didn't get it over years. That guy was the guy sitting on the dung heap that, had, that his children were crushed to death. And God allowed it. I can't tell you why. I have no idea other than what God teaches us in this book. But I can tell you that the Holy Spirit wants us to learn something about that. And that is, basically, I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am here with you always, even unto the end of the earth in Revelation. I don't have a better answer than that. 
And I hope that that answer brings hope. But God has a lot to say in the last chapter. That's my teaser to get you to come back to the next class. <laughs> so any questions before we leave? I hope I'm getting you out of here earlier. Any questions about any of this? Okay, so for anyone that's listening online that you might be walking toward the faith, you might be thinking about the faith, somebody might have made you listen to it because you're suffering, or you know someone that's suffering and you're mad at God, these things that Job teaches about God's love and grace. There's many verses in this book that talk, basically talk about God being patient with Job as Job works through these, this time that he learns with God. And God is patient with all of us. God wants to give us as much as we can handle so that we can understand who he is. But it is the grace of God that allows us our next breath, let alone our next day. And if suffering is causing you to look to God, um, we have someone who suffered more than we'll ever understand, which is Christ. If you read the account of Jesus Christ going to the cross and being tortured, you'll understand and being God incarnate, he didn't have to do that. He could have snapped a finger and, and it wouldn't have happened. So God just doesn't t teach us thematically about suffering. God has suffered personally so that we can understand that he understands our suffering. And what he wants us to do is to accept him into our lives by his grace. Be born again in John 3.3. 3. That's what Jesus said, you must be born again. Well, Job said it, didn't he? Job said it the whole book. I, I didn't do anything. I'm blameless. There's a difference between not doing anything and suffering and doing good and suffering for doing good, though. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, one level beyond. Yeah, I'm not equating him. I'm just saying in his mind, he didn't deserve what he was going through. And, and he didn't, technically. I want to share a little good news with you because I love you guys as Christians. This is our heritage. Um, we have some people from our group here, so you've heard me say this, so... You, just pretend you never heard it before, all right? So this is, I'm, I'm a church history nerd. This is an early church father, um, Aristides. It's, it was from 76 to 130, 140. He was a 14th emperor. He was writing to um, a 14th, the 14th emperor of Rome, wrote of the way, which was the Christian, Christians at that time. That was the name they went under. This is, he's speaking about Christians. They love one another. They never fail to help widows and save orphans from those who would hurt them. They freely give to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though they are brothers. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but as brothers through the Spirit of God. That was the reputation among the fair intellectuals, is said in this book, at that time in Rome. That's the reputation Christians have when, we're, when we really are thinking biblically and acting biblically, right? God's thank, thank you for your patience. I, you bless me more than I can tell you. I hope that the class is being a ministry and a blessing to you guys. The last one is next week. 
at seven. Maybe there'll be cake. <laughs> I don't know. It won't be by me unless Dunkin' Donuts is open at the time.